Luke chapter 20, verse 1. And it came to pass that on one of those days, as he, that's Jesus, taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders. The chapter begins by setting the scene according to its time. And we're told that it was in those days. And in those days, primarily for you and me, is the third and really the final segment of the ministry of Jesus. We've seen that he came essentially to do two things. Number one was to reveal the Father to mankind. He did that for the first three and a half years of his ministry, first up in the Galilee and then working his way southward down to Jerusalem. And now as he enters into Jerusalem for the final week of his ministry, he came or comes for the purpose of fulfilling the second reason why he came, and that was to lay down his life as a ransom and as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind and for the whole world. And so the first segment complete, Jesus laying down the example and the witness of the Father that he was sent to do. Now he moves into Jerusalem for the sake of laying down his life for the sins of mankind. And during this final week of Jesus' ministry that we have recorded for us from this point now until the end of the book, there are essentially six things that Jesus is going to do while he's there. And you can stretch that list out as you would desire to subdivide it. But essentially what he came to do in that, number one, is to be presented to the people as their Messiah. We saw that in our last study as he came in the triumphal entry, seated upon the colt of a donkey and was presented as their king. And then, of course, he was rejected. The second thing that he would do is he would purify the temple. Again, the very last segment of chapter 19. We saw Jesus enter into the temple and go in there and turn over the tables of the money changers and to cleanse what had become a den of thieves and bring purity to what was intended to be a house of prayer. The third thing that will happen, and it's what we'll see in our study tonight in chapter 20, is that the Lamb of God will be examined by the people that he came to save. After that, number four, he will teach his disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome and also concerning his second coming when he will return. And number five, he will have the last Passover or the last supper and institute the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And then finally, number six, he will go to the cross where he will be crucified and then he'll die and then three days later he will rise again. And so those are the events that are before us from chapter 20 to the end. So when Luke tells us that it's in those days, that it's in that context that we see Jesus now in this moment. The other thing that we notice about these days that Jesus is in as he's come to the temple is that these are for the Jews the days of the Passover. The Passover was one of the most sacred commemorations that the Jews uh, would keep as a feast year by year. There was three times in the year when every Jewish male, and essentially then every Jewish family, would converge upon Jerusalem to keep commemorations and feasts that God had ordained and commanded that they would keep. And the one in the spring would be the Passover, and that was when they would rehearse 
what God had done so many years ago in Egypt when he had set his people free from the slavery that they were under, under Pharaoh and under the Egyptians. And it commemorated that night on the 14th day of what would be the first month of their calendar when the death angel would pass through and pass over the nation of Israel and everywhere where the death angel did not see the blood of a perfect lamb sprinkled upon the posts and the lintel of the door of every house, if the blood was not applied to that house, then the firstborn in that house would die no matter what. The firstborn of every human, the firstborn of every animal, every firstborn would die unless the blood was applied. And so that miracle that God did in judging the firstborn of Egypt and at the same time passing over every house where he saw the blood. They were commanded each year to come to Jerusalem and rehearse that same act again. Every man would be required for his family to bring a lamb. That lamb had to be perfect. Then that lamb would be inspected and it would be slain. Its blood would be applied and they would go through the motions. And the purpose of that was first of all to remember what God had done all those years before. But what they didn't realize is that it was also to look forward to what God would one day do in the sending of his son Jesus, who would be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And that where his blood is applied, death would pass over. And so in that these are the days of Passover, and now the Passover lamb has come we see Jesus about to lay down his life for the sins of the world. When John the Baptist came on the scene, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, his message was that he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Because that's what Jesus was. He was the perfect Lamb that would take away the sin of the world. And now as Passover season comes, and Jesus is presented to them as their Passover lamb, he will prepare to die that death. Now, one of the amazing things about the Passover ritual is that from the 10th day of the first month until the 14th day of the first month, the lamb that would be slain on the 14th day was brought into the home of the family that would offer it. And the reason that the lamb would be brought into the home is that it would be examined during those days to make sure that it was without blemish because that lamb had to be spotless and it had to be perfect. And so what we see in Jesus now moving forward in chapter 20 is we see the examination of the lamb. Throughout the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to be questioned and he's going to be examined by every major religious or political group that existed in that day that had any clout at all for the sake of trying to find some fault within him. And so those are the days that we're in that Luke speaks of there in verse 1. And then it tells us that in those days as he uh, taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders. And they spoke unto him, saying, tell us by what authority doest thou these things? Now recall that what Jesus had done just the day previous, or maybe even the same day, is that he had gone into the temple and he had just run amok of the business that they had made out of the worship of God. 
He had taken the enterprise and the pollution that they had turned the worship of Jehovah into and he had turned it over on itself. And he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And now subsequent to that, he is now teaching the people his doctrine and preaching the gospel, which was essentially the message concerning himself. And so in a moment of rage, they conglomerate upon him and they ask him, by what authority now do you do these things? And so in verse 3, Jesus answered them and he said, I will also ask you one thing and you answer me. So he pulls the old, I'll answer that question if you'll answer one to me first. And then he poses it. He says, the baptism of John, speaking of John the Baptist, his forerunner. He says, was it from heaven or was it of men? Now, John the Baptist came for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to point to Jesus as the Messiah. And his baptism was a baptism of preparation so that the people would be ready to receive the Messiah and hear his message when he came. And so now he says, this man who testified essentially of me and baptize the nation to prepare them for me. Now, what do you say about the validity of his ministry? Was that from heaven? Or was he simply a man who was self-appointed that was doing something that he thought he should do on his own? And it says that they reasoned with themselves. So they come together and they huddle uh, before they give official answer to this question. And inside that huddle, they say, if we shall say that it's from heaven then he will say, then why then did you not believe him? If we say that this is true, that John the Baptist was sent by God, then he's going to say, then you should have listened to him because he told you that I was the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. He pointed to me as the Messiah. But, verse 6, if we say that it's of men, then all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they could not tell from whence John's baptism came. They said, we don't have an answer for you at this time. And so Jesus said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. And so the first test that Jesus faces at the hands of the chief priests and the religious rulers of that day concerns where he gained his authority or where he claimed that his authority came from to do the things that he was doing and to say the things that he was saying. Now, in the immediate of this, what they're seeking to do is to make him claim to be something more than he would lawfully uh, be acceptable or accepted as, and they want to trap him in his words in some way where they can silence him or discredit his reputation. That's in the immediate. But the reality of the situation and what's really going on spiritually within the hearts and minds of these men and really of the whole religious establishment is that they want to undermine his heavenly authority, thus removing themselves from being accountable to his person and to his words. That's what they want to do in this whole thing. Now, what Jesus does in response to this question in his wisdom, is that he points to something that affirms the truth of what he is, and he asks them, or that they affirmed that was the truth of what he is, and they, he says, what do you think of that? 
So he points to something that they already affirmed that bore witness to his authority, and he says, what do you think? Now, if they say that, yes, we agree with John the Baptist, then they automatically have to agree with what he's doing. And so they choose not to answer. Now, people do that all the time within their lives, even today. They will affirm something that God has ordained, but they will not accept the terms of Jesus' lordship over their lives. They don't want Jesus to be Lord, but yet they testify against themselves and that they do affirm things of God. You'll ask certain people and you say, is there a standard of something that's right and something that's wrong? People will say, yes, there is a standard. It is wrong to kill. It is wrong to steal. It is wrong to lie. And they'll say that there's things that are right. It's right to be honest. It's right to be faithful. It's right to get married. And people will affirm things that are ordained and established by God but yet they will deny the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. And in so doing, they are condemning themselves. See, if God's word is not true, and if Jesus is not Lord, then what's the purpose of having a moral absolute at all? There might as well just be nothing. Why wouldn't I lie if there's no God, if the Bible isn't true? Why would I get married if there isn't a God that sanctions that and tells me that that's the way life and family is supposed to work? Why would I be honest and not steal? Why wouldn't I just do what's best for me and live my life however I want and everyone else should just do the same? But people don't want, they say, well, no, there's got to be some truth. Listen, if there's some truth, then there's absolute truth. And so if there's any truth, it's all truth. And if it's only half true, then it's all wrong. And thus the people, these people in the text, they affirm that John the Baptist is from heaven, but they don't want to confess and admit that because they know it'll make them accountable to the authority of Jesus. And so they don't answer. And Jesus says, then I'm not going to answer. But then what Jesus does is he answers anyway. In verse nine, it says, then began he to speak the people this parable. He said, a certain man planted a vineyard and he led it forth to husbandmen or gardeners. And then he went into a far country for a long time. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard, but the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. Now in this parable, the, the garden or the vineyard is the world. And the owner of that vineyard is God himself. He's the one that owns it by uh, right of creation. He made it and thus he owns it. But what he did is that he gave authority over it to men. That's what happened when God put Adam in the Garden of Eden. He placed them there as his authority. Then he birthed the nation of Israel and he made them his spiritual authority over the world in that way. And so God is the owner of the vineyard and the people of God now, and and really you could make this universal or you could make it just to Israel as Jesus is doing in the parable. Those are the husbandmen or the gardeners that are renting the orchard or the vineyard that isn't theirs. And so the first servant comes, but he's beaten and sent away empty because they want nothing to do with him. And so in verse 11, it says again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Well, then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. 
But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What, therefore, shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and he shall give the vineyard to others. Now, the implication that Jesus is making by this parable is that he himself who's standing before them is the son of God, who is the owner of the vineyard, and that they are the ones that are going to murder him. And so by answer, or reason of answer to the question that they have, by what authority do you do these things, he is now confessing to them in this parable form that he is the very son of God himself, the son of the one who owns and planted the vineyard, the son of the God whom Israel claims to serve, and that they now are standing before him as rejectors of his authority and thus then his murderers also. And we know that that's what he was implying because look at their response at the second half of verse 16. He says, and when they heard it, they said, God forbid, God forbid that you're the son of God and God forbid that we would be the murderers of the son of God. They thought him to be an imposter. And so Jesus, it says that when he beheld them, he said, what is this then? That is written that the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. He's quoting again from Psalm 118, the same psalm that was quoted in chapter 19 by his disciples at the triumphant entry when they said, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. And it spoke of him coming as their Messiah, but then being rejected. And it was a play on a traditional story that existed that when they built the temple, they found a stone that was sent from the quarry that didn't seem to fit in a line with any of the plans and blueprints that they had. And so they counted it to be an error and they threw it over the valley and it rolled off and was lost. And then they went through and they built the rest of the whole compound. And when they were finished, the only thing that was missing was the chief cornerstone which was the most important block in the whole thing because it made sense of all the dimensions, length, width, and height that existed upon the rest of the uh, compound and the establishment. And they couldn't find it. And so they sent a message to the quarry and they said, where's the chief cornerstone? And they said, we sent it a long time ago. We sent it first. And they said, we don't have it. It's not here. And then someone in searching found this stone down in the valley and said, we found something down here. And they measured it and they found that this is perfect. And thus the stone that was rejected by the builders, the same became the chief cornerstone. And Jesus says that implies or applies to your rejection of me. So you've built this whole establishment. You have the word of God. You have the nation of God. You have the will of God that's been established and determined in scripture. And now the cornerstone has been brought to you, but I'm not what you thought in your mind I should look like. You thought I would be a conquering king. You thought I would fall in line with your establishment and your traditions and your ways, but I'm not what you, you, you set me forth to be. I am everything that the scripture set me forth to be. And thus you've rejected the cornerstone, but the cornerstone I am. And so he says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And Jesus says, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. 
And thus, Jesus says in response to their question concerning his authority and his answer that he is the Son of God, he says that all of life and eternity are determined by what you do with Christ, the chief cornerstone. And if you fall upon him, then your life will be broken. Everything that you are will come undone, but it will be built upon that rock. But if that rock falls on you, then you will be ground to powder and your existence will cease to be completely. There are really only two questions that every man, woman, and child has to deal with within this world. The first question is, is there a God? And it's almost like every one of us, we come into this world and uh, we're kind of put in front of all this information and it's almost as though all the pieces of a grand jigsaw puzzle are just scattered out in front of us. And there's no sense to it at all and we could in our minds just look at everything that's there that makes no sense and we could just say, well, this is just an accident. These are just pieces of rubbish, pieces of garbage and I can rightly live my whole life and just ignore all of these pieces and never try to make any sense of them. But what if there is a picture? What if there is something that when these pieces are arranged the right way, we can actually see that there's a window of truth. There's reason behind our life at all. There's a God that made it. And so a wise person will come into life and they'll deal with that question that is there a God? When I look out at creation and all that God made, when I consider my body and my mind and what I am, when I consider the musings of my heart and mind as I grow into maturity and realize, did, am I here by accident? Is this just some mistake, some science experiment, something that happened, electrons coming together and protons in life, and it's just, is that all this is? Or is there a God that made it? And as I begin to, in my life, with the evidence that God has set before me, come to a conclusion, I have to determine, do I believe that there's a God Or is there not a God? And that's a very simple choice to make. It's one or the other. I either believe there's a God based on the evidence or I don't believe that there is a God based upon the evidence. But anyone that looks at that evidence has to come to an honest conclusion that there must be a creator. We haven't even talked about who he is yet, but there's got to be someone that made all of what we see and what we interact with. Then the second question, if I can come to terms with the first, is who is he? Who is the God that made all of these things? And as you begin to take all of what's out here for us, all in creation, all that's in our conscience, all that's in us, all the truth that's been revealed, and we begin to arrange those pieces of that jigsaw puzzle, and we make a frame. We take the border pieces, and we just put them in, and we make a thing, and we say, look, there's sense to this. All these pieces are beginning to fit together. And even though I don't understand all of it, I know that there's got to be something. And so the second question I've got to deal with then is, is the Bible the true and revealed word of God? And so I take the evidence that's been set forth internally. I take the evidence of its claims. I take the evidence of its prophecy. I take the evidence of changed lives of those that have put their faith within it. I take the evidence of what it says and the reason and how it resonates. And I come to a conclusion that I can say, yes, the word of God is true, that it is absolute, that the God of the Bible is the God that made all things. And those are the only two questions that you have to really deal with in life. Is there a God and who is he? And if you can come to the conclusion of those two things, after that, all of the rest of things begin to fall into place. You might not understand the whole picture, but you come to a place where you realize absolutely that there is one. And as you continue to walk with him, things become clearer and clearer as everything finds its place. Jesus says, if if you fall upon this rock, you'll be broken. But if this rock falls upon you, you will be ground to powder. 
Is there a God and who is he? They wouldn't come to those terms. Well, the second test that Jesus faces in verse 19 is at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they're seeking to see if Jesus will be in submission to the laws of God and men. It says that, and the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. And so they watched him, and they sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men. Now, the other Gospels tell us that these are the Herodians that were, that were sent. They were a political party that were sympathetic to the Romans. They were Jews, but they didn't mind the fact that they were occupied by Rome. They liked the conditions of it, and so they butt heads with a lot of the others. But the Pharisees kind of conspired with them to go now and fake themselves to be just men and to ask Jesus this question. And so they desired to take hold of his words so that they might deliver him unto the power and the authority of the governor. And so they asked him, saying, Master, we know that you say and teach rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but you teach the way of God truly. Now, if you want to butter someone up, just flatter them before you ask them the question that you're going to ask. That's what they're doing. Is it lawful for us to give tribute or pay taxes unto Caesar or not? Oh, they got him. Checkmate, or at least check they put him into here. Because see, if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, because the Bible says, give tribute to whom tribute is due and be in submission to the authorities. If he's not compromising in the will of God, he's going to incite the wrath of the Jewish people if he says that they should pay taxes because the multitude of the Jews were in rebellion against Rome and they were looking for a deliverer that would say, of course you're not going to pay taxes to Rome. So if he says yes, he loses the favor of the people. But if he says no, then they're able to take his word at the mouth of two or three witnesses to the Roman authorities and say he is in rebellion against Caesar and the edicts of Caesar and therefore he ought to be arrested and crucified for sedition on the spot. They've got him. If he says yes, if he says no, there's no way out. But it says that he perceived their craftiness and he said unto them, why tempt ye me? Show me a penny whose image and superscription hath it. And they answered and they said, Caesar's. And so he said unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people and they marveled at his answer and then they held their peace. So now the second group of people, which are these Herodians, which are sent by the scribes and the Pharisees to come and and ask him, will he compromise the will of God and the law of God and the well-being of the nation? About this question of taxes, he answers it by saying, show me the penny and show me whose picture is on it. He says, if Caesar's picture is on that money, then you give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This has nothing to do with me and it has nothing to do with us. If he wants his money, then give him his money. That just makes sense. But then he adds to them an answer for a question that they didn't ask. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Well, the unasked question is, what has God's image inscribed on it? And the answer is, you do. Because the Bible says that we are made in the image of God, that God made man in his image. 
And the very purpose that God made man for is that we would be with him and that we would live with him and glorify him forever. That's the reason we've been made. And thus the whole purpose of life is that we would discover who God is and that we've been made in his image and that in turn in discovering that we would then present our lives to him and we would give back to him what he made us to be. And thus we would discover the very purpose for our existence. And so what Jesus is saying to them essentially is that your allegiances on earth, whether they be to the nation of Israel or to the nation of Rome, are completely irrelevant. The real question is, is your allegiance in heaven, is your name written there, and are you a citizen? That's what's the issue, and that's what's at stake. And so he doesn't just answer their question correctly, but he turns it right over on their own head, and he says, are you right with the creator who made you? And thus he comes through the second test with flying colors. The third comes from the Sadducees, another one of the religious sects there in Jerusalem. And it tells us in verse 27 that then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection, and they asked him. And so now we have this sect of the Sadducees. And they were what you would call more or less the conservatives doctrinally. They didn't believe in anything that was supernatural, whether it was the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe uh, in any miracles that God would do. They didn't believe that God would intervene in any way, that everything was just kind of set in motion by God and that one day everything would give account to God, but that it just exists unto itself for the time being. And so they come to him with this doctrinal question, and that's the nature of this test or of this questioning is what does he believe? And understand something, that what we believe or what we would call our doctrine is a very important thing. And the reason why doctrine is important is because what we believe doctrinally, the substance of it, testifies who we worship or testifies to whom we worship. See, if we, if we say, well, I believe this about God and I believe that about God or I believe this about the Bible and I believe that about, you know, I take this from Buddhism and this from the Bible and this from Eastern mysticism and that's kind of the God, the truth that I serve. What you believe, that's your doctrine and it speaks to your devotion, what you live for. And it will also then translate into your behavior because what you believe is ultimately going to determine how you behave or how you live your life. And thus, if Jesus can be caught up in some way of not having proper doctrine concerning God, then it can be demonstrated that he is not only not a servant of God, but that he's not sent by God. And so they're seeking to trap him in his doctrine. And so they come to him with this question, verse 28, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us that if any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, what this is called is the law of the Leverite. And the law is exactly as they put it forth to him, that if you marry and the man dies before they have children, then the younger brother of that deceased was required by law to marry the woman who was widowed, and their first child of that union would carry the name of the older brother so that the lineage of his name would continue. That was the law of the Levite, and that was the law of God. That was legitimate. It was doctrinally sound. But now they make up a synthetic scenario concerning the law of the Levite, and they seek to trap Jesus into confessing that it's impossible that there be a resurrection. He says, verse 29, there were therefore seven brothers... And the first took a wife and died without children. 
And the second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. And so all seven of these boys are stupid enough to marry this girl. <laughs> Wouldn't you start to ask the question here, you know, in, in the thing, and you would think they'd be smart enough to see the, the foolishness of their own scenario. But it says, last of all, the woman died also. So she ends up dying without ever having any children at all. And so the question is, verse 33, therefore, in the resurrection, (laughs) and they're elbowing each other, we got them, here it is. Whose wife of them is she? For seven of them had her to wife. Now, I'm sure that the disciples were going, oh, which one is it? You know, how is he going to answer this? You know, Jesus completely unshaken by it. It says in verse 34 that Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being children of the resurrection. Jesus just said a lot of things, didn't he? That raised up a lot of questions within our minds. His answer to their question concerning resurrection in the world to come is that he draws a distinction between the world that now is and the world that is yet to come. And what he essentially says to them is that what you don't understand is that the ideals and the um, uh, institutions that make this world what it is aren't necessarily the same institutions that will make up what the next world is. And being that you've never been in that world and have no understanding concerning that world, you are in ignorance and in error concerning this question. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually prefaces his answer by saying to them, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. He doesn't say that, or Luke doesn't record him saying that. Matthew uh, records that Jesus, or Mark does, that you are in error because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And what we must understand is that there is a vast difference between the world that we are in right now and the institutions that we are under because we're in this world and the institutions of the world that is yet to come and the institutions that we will be under them then. And what Jesus tells us here primarily is that when we go into that world, we will not marry and we will not be given in marriage. Now that for me, did someone just say amen? That's, that's messed up. <laughs> I, hope you're, I hope you're not married yet, person who said that, and you're just bearing witness that, okay, God, I surrender to your, your will for my life, you know. I used to struggle with that. I did, honestly, because for a couple reasons. Number one is because the first time I ever read that, I wasn't married yet. And it was something that I really wanted to do. I wanted to be married. And so to to think, okay, Jesus, you might come and that might never happen for me. And that was actually a real stumbling block. Not to the point where I was saying, Lord, I'm not going to follow you anymore. But I I was thinking, I don't really know if I like that part of of things. It still bothers me a little bit. And now I've been married, uh, I think, 15 years. You know, right? Is it 15? Whatever year it is. is that what it, you know, hey, we have five kids. I'm allowed to forget things like that. I know my anniversary, you know. But the reason why I struggle with it now uh, is different from the reason I struggled with it then. The reason I struggle with it now is because I really, really, really like my wife. And, and so when I think about 
like, what's going to happen? I say this to her sometimes. Are we going to get raptured and we're going to stand before the Lord? And I'm just going to be like, all right, well, see ya. You want to sign my yearbook? I mean, <laughs> you know, like, what, what are we going to do? And then she, you know, and she always just rolls her eyes at me and says, no, we're one. You know, somehow that's going to play a part in things. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, but I think, Lord, Georgia, what's going to happen really is that you're going to be given to someone better than me in heaven, you know, because, you know, if this is a mistake, I shouldn't have you as my wife. You know, really, that's what I think about the whole thing. But really, when we get new bodies and we're in heaven and it's a whole new uh, existence from what we have now, everything is going to be different. We're going to have glorified bodies. The Bible talks about our bodies now as being tense. And it talks about our bodies then as being like mansions in comparison to tents now. And so everything will be so far glorified from anything that we can comprehend or understand. The Apostle Paul said that it would be unlawful for me to try to explain the things that I was seeing when I saw the third heaven, when I was caught up into it. There's no words in language, the sounds that I heard, the words that I heard spoken, the things that I saw. It's outside of our comprehension. Paul would say that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it hasn't even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And the bodies that we will have at that time are not equipped with that institution of marriage and for it. It'll be different. We'll have different drives. It'll be glorified. It'll be beyond what our five senses can experience here. It'll be beyond the three dimensions that we interact with here. It'll be so far above and beyond anything that we can comprehend. And what Jesus is letting them know that he's also letting us know to understand is that that world operates on a completely different system. It's a total different operation than what we know and what we relate to here and now. And that they were in error because they were the ones that didn't understand it. And rather than them growing into the expanse of what God is in their understanding, they were seeking to bring God into subjection to their world realm and understanding. And Jesus would call that an error. The other thing that Jesus says that I find noteworthy in this passage is, is, um, is there in verse um, 35 when he says, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. Do you notice there that he doesn't say those that are, are um, achieved or counted to achieve worthiness of that world? And the reason why he uses that word accounted worthy is because the only way that anyone will ever find themselves in that world is by a worthiness that is reckoned unto them or laid to their account apart from their own achievements. There is no one that will ever attain heaven or the glories of heaven based upon their worthiness in and of themselves or what they can earn or achieve in their, their, their obedience to God. Everyone will be in heaven based upon their accounting of worthiness. Luke 21, verse 36, when Jesus was talking about the rapture, he said, pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. And so what our prayer is, is not, Lord, may I be worthy in my works, but Lord, may, be, may I be accounted worthy through the death and resurrection of your Son, and the blood of his covenant applied to the door of my heart that your death would pass over and that I might be accounted worthy of it. The third thing that Jesus tells us in that answer that he gave to them concerns uh, our likeness to the angels, and it's in verse 36. He says, neither can they die anymore. And that, we, that is that we will be eternal beings, for they are equal unto the angels. Now, 
we are only equal unto the angels in that respect, that we cannot die. Just as an angel cannot die, so also when we are in that world, we cannot any longer die. Death will have no more rule over us. But that's as far as our likeness to the angels goes. Jesus then adds to that by saying afterward, and if you notice that word and there in verse, uh, the middle of verse 35, I'm sorry, in the middle of verse 36, he says, and are the children of God. Now, we are like the angels in that we don't die, but we are unlike the angels in that we are called the children of God. And, and so angels are not called the children of God. We are. Hebrews chapter one, verse five says this. He says, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, you are my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In chapter two, verse five of Hebrews, the writer again says, for unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? For you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. And so to the angels, he never calls them his sons. But to us, he says that we are. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons and the daughters or the children of God. And thus those that belong to him are eternal like the angels, but beyond the angels, we are also called the children of God, being children of the resurrection. And so Jesus answers this question concerning the marriage in this way, but then he addresses the resurrection head on in verse 37. He says, now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, and all live unto him. Now, if, if Moses would call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that right there is biblical, simple proof that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so thus, he silences them with his answer, showing that he is doctrinally authoritative beyond them or their expectations. And thus, Jesus proves that he knows more than them. And he certainly knows more than any man. And that includes you and me about the things of God and the things of heaven. And thus... He can be trusted in his testimony concerning the things of God and the things of heaven, and his testimony is unshakable. And so Jesus passes the test concerning his doctrine. And then he finishes, uh, it says in verse 39, it says, Then certain of the scribes answered, and they said, Master, you have well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any questions at all. They knew at this point that no matter what they threw at him and no matter where it came from, he would have the perfect answer and that there was no way that they could stumble him. And so what he does then is he goes on offense. He puts away his shield and he gets out his sword and now he asks them a question in verse 41. And so he said unto them, how say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, that the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstools. Quoting Psalm 110 verse one. 
David, therefore, calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And so what Jesus does now is he turns the tables on them and he aims a question at the scribes, which were the religious authority doctrinally of that day. And he says, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is David's son? that he'll be the son of David. Now that was absolutely not only a statement that the scribes made, but it was absolutely biblically right. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David had a desire to build the temple for the Lord, the prophet Nathan came back and said, David, the Lord spoke to me and said, you're not gonna build him a house because he's chosen someone else for that task. But this is the word that God has for you is that he's going to build you a house and that there will never cease to sit one of your descendants upon the throne of Israel. Now, the descendant that Nathan the prophet was talking about was the Messiah himself. And what God was speaking to David is that there will be a Messiah, a savior that will come and he will come into the world through your lineage. And so the fact that Christ would be the son of David, a descendant of David, was absolutely biblically right, and the scribes attested to that, that Christ will be a descendant of David. And so Jesus said, you scribes say that Christ will be a descendant of David. But here's my question to you then. How is it that David calls Christ his Lord? How is it that David can look into his future at someone who is less than him genealogically and ascribe to that someone that he's actually greater than him positionally, calling him Lord. And he quotes Psalm 110. David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your your enemies your footstool. So what you scribes are testifying out of your own mouth is that someday someone's going to come on the scene born in the lineage of David that will carry deity within them and yet they are the son of David. They will be deity in that respect that they belong to him or the implication is that if Christ is both David's son and David's Lord, then it stands to reason that there will be a manifestation of deity that will come in human flesh and that will be the offspring of David. And so what Jesus is asking them, and it's open-ended because they don't answer the question, is that if you believe that that's gonna happen one day, then what exactly are you looking for and why can't you recognize it when it's standing right in front of you? That's the question that he's asking. And the answer to that question that they don't give, but that we know, is that they don't recognize it because they don't want to recognize it. And that's the only reason why anyone will not recognize Jesus as the son of God. And so Jesus then speaks, verse 45, in the audience of all the people. And he said unto his disciples, beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at the feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers for the same shall receive a greater damnation. And so this warning that he gives to the scribes, what it shows to us is that any person who seeks to put Jesus to an honest trial will ultimately find that not only does Jesus stand 
in that trial that he's put under, but that they actually were the ones that were on trial all along. And that's the case in each of these instances, isn't it? When we consider the question concerning his authority, he turned the tables on them and, 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 and showed that they were the ones that were on trial. The same with those that ask about the taxes, the same that those that asked about the resurrection, and now he turns to them and he puts them on the trial. And he asked them the question concerning their blatant rejection of what's obviously standing right in front of them. And to refuse Jesus Christ in light of all the evidence that is set forth as to who he is and what he came to do is to receive the greater damnation upon oneself. And that's where Jesus leaves them here at the end of this chapter. By the time we come to the end of chapter 20, Jesus has stood before every major authoritative body of Jewish leaders that ruled in that day. He stood before the chief priests and those that were under them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Herodians. And by the time Jesus is crucified, just a few days from where we are here, he'll have stood before the Sanhedrin, which was the 70 rulers that were the governing body of Israel, the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, Pilate, who was the prefect of Rome, Herod, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee, the nation that's gathered as a multitude before him. He'll stand before, or hang literally, before two guilty thieves and before a band of soldiers that are tasked with crucifying him. And aside from the false witnesses that step forward and the lies that they contrive of their own mind, not one of the people that examine Jesus at any stretch of his life can find any fault with him whatsoever. And the conclusion of the matter is that he is the only spotless lamb that qualifies to be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he was examined by everyone who could possibly examine him and they searched for any flaw that they could possibly find within him and they didn't find even one. There was not one thing that they could lay to his charge. And in our present day, there is no scholar, no scientist, there's no historian, there's no biologist, there's no paleontologist, there's no philosopher, there's no politician, and there is no human being that with an honest heart and assessment can find fault with Jesus, his person, his claims, his works, or his teachings, except it be pure prejudice and unwillingness to deal with the consequences of what that profession and what that belief would cost within that life. And if that's true, then what does that mean? Jesus came to be two things. He came to be Savior, and he came to be Lord. And if Jesus is without blemish and without fault and qualified to be the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and if there's no fault in him that disqualifies him from that position, then that means for you and I that he is able to, based on our trust in him to forgive every one of our sins and to secure a place for us in heaven that's paid for based upon who he is and what he did. And what that means is that his blood is sufficient to pay the price for our sins. That's what makes him savior. And that's the offer that God extends to every human being that's alive today, is that he will take your sins and he'll place them upon his son and he'll apply the perfect spotless blood of the perfect spotless lamb to your account that you might be accounted worthy where your sins held you condemned. 
That's the gospel. That's what makes him Savior. But he didn't just come to be Savior. He also came to be Lord. And if he's the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, and he qualifies to be Savior, and he also came to be Lord, and as much as there's no fault in his work as Savior, then neither is there any fault in his work as Lord within our lives. And here's what that means. It means that for you and I that sit here tonight with his name written upon us and our names written in heaven and with our desire to follow him and that he would be the Lord of our lives, it means that the way that he determines to work within our lives and the things that he allows or does within our lives are absolutely faultless is that he qualifies to be the Lord of our existence while we yet wait for the moment when we will stand with him in his kingdom. And he is committed to finishing what he started within our lives and he uses all of the various circumstances and things that we go through to do it. I was talking with a woman earlier in the week. It was not a counseling session. It was just a conversation. And in our conversation, we began to talk about the fact that she is a Christian And she's walking with the Lord and has been for some time, but her husband is not. And she was describing what it's like to live in that situation and that condition where she is seeking to follow the things of God, but she's living in an environment that's hostile to the things of God. And we were talking about the trials and the various things that go along with it. And she's come to terms with it. And she stands strong and tall for the Lord in the midst of the circumstances that she's in. But what I said to her as we were just talking back and forth, I said, you know, It seems like no matter who it is, every single one of us that are in this world right now have something going on within our lives that are equally as painful and equally as difficult as having an unsaved spouse in the thing that's going on in your life. Every one of us has something. Whether it's a health issue that we are afraid under or that we're dealing with or whether it is a spouse that's unsaved or a prodigal son or daughter or whether it's a financial burden or pressure or whether it's just some crazy thing that's going on within our life that we have no answer for at all. It's something heavy. Every one of us at every given moment has one of those things within our life. And here's the frustrating thing about those things is that we know that at any given moment, God could flip a switch and he could fix it. And we know that because every one of us also has things in our lives that God has flipped a switch and he's fixed it in that instant. And thus we know that he's able to take those things that are of such weight and pressure to us and in one minute he could flip the switch, but yet he doesn't. And we often ask the question, we say, why God are you allowing these things within my life or maybe even ordaining these things within my life that I don't understand and that I quite frankly don't like and that I know you have power to change? Well, the Bible tells us in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33, that he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. In other words, God doesn't do things or allow things in our life that crush us or hurt us just because he's seeking to afflict us or impose his will upon us in some way that's uncomfortable. But the Bible then goes on to say, just a few verses later in verse 40, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. And here's the point. Here's where we conclude. And the musicians can come because we're winding down very rapidly at this point. 
is that he, as the Lord of our lives, and as the faultless lamb that's able to perform the work unto completion that he started within us, is using every one of those circumstances and those things that we are going through to complete his work within our lives. And he knows exactly what he's doing with those things. And he will accomplish what it is that he's seeking to do with them. And when he is done, he will remove them from us because that's what he does. And what he calls us to do in the midst of that is to trust him. And so his word to us tonight, as we look at the faultless lamb, is that you can trust him in the midst of whatever you're going through, no matter what it is. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we uh, see Jesus as the Lamb of God who was for those days before his crucifixion examined to see if there could be found any fault in him whatsoever and who he would become as Savior and who he would then be as Lord. And I know that, Lord, on a Wednesday night, the majority of us that are here We already are under the banner of your salvation and and under the banner of your lordship. But tonight, Lord, we choose to look again into the face of the perfect lamb, the one who sees all things and knows all things, and the one who can do all things. And we seek to surrender our full trust to your skillful hand that leads, that shepherds, that changes and guides, that we might be all that you would have us to be and that you might complete the work that you've begun in us. So may we have a fresh appreciation for the blood, a fresh appreciation for the cross and for the Christ, and that you, Jesus, would be our supreme affection, and that all of our faith would be found in you, and that truly our lives would fall upon this rock, that our foundation would never be shaken. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.